Drew Balvin, Twitter Bass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is actually two guests. The two constituent members of our crack Fangraphs prospect team, including lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen and also lead prospect analyst emeritus Kylie McDaniel. Together, the two of them analyze all prospects in this edition of Fangraphs Audio, which I'm referring to as a Fangraphs prospect team conference call. Fangraphs prospect team conference call. It begins, if I recall correctly, or it mostly begins with some questions about Casey Mize. That is Auburn right-hander Casey Mize, projected by many to go first overall in June's amateur draft. The gap, says both McDaniel and Longenhagen, the gap between Mize and the draft's other top prospects is not so substantial as one might expect for a number of reasons. Uh, One question I ask or nearly ask is who would go first if not Mize? One such possibility is Georgia Tech catcher Joey Bart who slid from ninth to second in Longenegan and McDaniel's most recent mock draft. The Giants' front office has been connected to Bart after members of their front office have been seen at his games, which opens up another line of inquiry with our prospect team, namely which decision-makers have been seen where. Kelly and Eric discussed the hierarchy, from area scout all the way up to general manager and or team president. Also hear how Cleveland could ruin the draft for a bunch of other teams in a conversation on the pro side about Juan Soto, where he fits in the spectrum of recent hitting prodigies. And one note, this actually was recorded shortly before Juan Soto's promotion to the major leagues, although it is also entirely relevant uh, to what we've seen from Juan Soto thus far as a major leaguer. That conversation with Eric Longenagan and Kyla McDaniel to begin shortly first it is both my privilege and also my professional obligation to announce that Fangraphs memberships exist. For reasonable sum, readers of Fangraphs.com can support the great work that appears in those electronic pages and for a slightly less Reasonable sum, not unreasonable, but slightly less reasonable. Readers can acquire what is known as an ad-free membership, which allows them to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but also liberating one from the tyranny of advertising, and the distortive effects of advertising, etc., etc. Fangraphs membership and ad-free membership, available at Fangraphs.com by going to that URL and then clicking around a little bit. With that advert now complete, let us move on to the program. What is it? It's Fangraphs Audio. Who does the feature? Fangraphs crack prospect team. And when does it begin? Right now. Performing our um, the exercise mm. <laughs> the warm up uh. exercises for this improv team. Mm. Me, me, what me, I would, me, me. <laughs> what I would like to do: elephants is this. eat watermelons. Elephants eat watermelons. <laughs> the mango <laughs> shoots an osprey. The mango <laughs> shoots an osprey. Here, what is the? Uh, you just as we're warming up, can you tell me about Josh Rojas briefly? Did, did anyone? Can either of you? Unload your files on Josh Rojas. I can tell you that somebody joked to me that this year, Stephen Kwan, an outfielder for Oregon State who has no tools and really good numbers, will be this year's Josh Rojas. And I can tell you that multiple teams did not have Josh Rojas turned in. He signed for $1,000 as a senior out of Hawaii. And I think he's in double A and hitting well already. He's 24 at double A. 
Typically, that sort of guy after the 10th round, you expect him to be in your system for two to three years, maybe get to double A and then get released once you have a new batch of 22-year-olds coming in. And the fact that he turned into, like, a guy is pretty surprising. And he, like, might end up on a 40-man, which, like I'm saying, the expectation for a $1,000 senior is that their, you know, career is three years and they never even get close to a 40-man. Maybe they get to double A. So he's already outperformed expectations, and nobody saw this coming. Because is the is the he has no purpose of that sort of guy? I mean, I guess of most minor leaguers, right? Is the is their purpose simply to be? Well, here let me allow me to to tell a brief anecdote. Is when I was in grad school, I had a friend who had two cats, and one of the cats' names was Steve, and the other cat's name was Steve's friend. And it was clear that Steve's friend was simply there to give Steve something to do. And I'm wondering, like, typically this this sort of prospect who's selected in the 10th, like, as you say, like, after the 10th round, $1,000 signing, like, are they there merely to fill out the rosters so the actual prospects can participate in baseball games? Like you're saying the card games on the bus don't have enough people, so they brought in Josh Rojas to finish out the card games, and I guess he could pinch hit some, too. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, and Josh Rose and his ilk. I mean, is that, is that, that must be like a player type though, right? I mean, there are enough guys who have that dream to play. That gets discussed all the time that over oh, signing thousand dollar, you know, seniors to fill out these rosters, we have no expectation that they'll even get to the upper levels. They have to be plus makeup guys and ideally would be able to play a couple different positions. Yeah. Was Mike Talkman? Was he one of those guys? I mean, he signed in, I think, the 10th round for $1,000 or the 11th round, something after the 10th round for $1,000. Do you, do you know who Mike Talkman is? I'm, I'm aware <laughs> of his name, yes. I, I don't Mike know. Mike Talkman, the... he's made it to the major leagues, and he's probably he's one of the best hitters at AAA now, and he was last year as well, and he can play center field. He's, a, he's performed abominably as a major leaguer. Yeah, he was a 10th round senior sign, so probably a little higher than Rojas, but it couldn't have been for very much money. So he was like a, a priority senior, but... Not especially good. Yeah. So there's just a lot of guys who are there. That's the, that's the deal. That that's their side of the deal, right? They'll say, okay, I will, I will fill out your roster uh, in an exchange for that, or it, because I think that uh, I can do something with the shot as a professional ball player. Are you speaking as yourself now? Mm, no, because I've not given that opportunity. <sighs> okay, that's that. That's that question. That's that's more than I anticipated. Uh, on Josh Rojas. Wait, have, uh, we, have we started already? <laughs> you have recently performed, both of you, you performed a mock draft. And I think this is version 2.0. I look forward to... The first one was version 1.0. This was 2.0. I, I eagerly await, I eagerly await a, a different number after the decimal. <laughs> so I don't know when version 2.1 or 2.5 will come along. However... Casey Mice sits atop this current one, but uh, there's reason to believe. Uh, I understand that Casey Mize, despite perhaps profiling as the top overall prospect in the draft, might not actually go first overall. Is that a probability? Is that probability higher now than it was weeks ago? I think it's never been 100% because I mean, we referred in the preseason rankings that there was some question regarding his health because he missed a couple starts last year with an arm issue. And as far as we were told before the year, most of the top prospects provided some sort of medical history, and he didn't. So there was enough of a history that teams didn't have clarity on that they wondered, hey, could this be a guy where when we get the medical right before the draft or after we pick him, that there could be something in there? There was enough 
history to suggest that that could happen. So there's a bit of a, well, he'll go here if the medical's clean or if he stays healthy the rest of the year, etc. Like there's been that qualifier that there hasn't really been with other top players in this class. So for that reason, and then also in the mock, we mentioned that like the GM for the Tigers has been seeing a bunch of different players. So obviously at the very least, they're making it seem like they're looking at other players if they're not actually looking at them earnestly. And then Eric and I have sort of separate things where we're not positive he's the number one prospect for a number of like lesser reasons that haven't really been talked about a lot by the media at large, but that's sort of a separate question. It's a separate question. Is it one that you'll answer right now? <laughs> I mean, I'll let Eric talk because I've been talking well, a lot. It's just, we think the gap between Mize and the, the rest of the class, like the upper the upper crust, the Nick Madrigals and, and Joey Bartz is close enough that once you factor in the injury stuff, or at least your questions about it, which doesn't sound like are going to be solved. Not not for us. Team, teams presumably yeah. will have them answered. But once you factor that in combined with, okay, well, also this is a guy who throws his cutter more than anything else, and the body is not typical, and the, the pitch usage, and it's, it's not typical, and then we have you know, questions about fastball efficacy, you know, even in his 15 strikeout start against Vanderbilt a couple weeks ago, he got just one swing and miss on the fastball all start. So like, he's the top guy. And so he's going to be picked apart like this in ways that are probably unfair. But if you're going to take, if you have the top pick, then you're, you have to do that. And it's just at the point now where the way we are thinking about Mize, and it seems like the way the teams at the top of the draft are operating right now that there's at least some chance that teams up there go in a different direction we just don't think it's a foregone conclusion that he's won one at this point and it seems that other people tend to think that to put a, a finer point on that eric charted his uh his whole start against vandy and then i saw his starts in person against florida and alabama and i have velocities and pitch types for like two-thirds of his pitches in both of those games and putting those together, he throws 37% fastballs, 32% cutters, 15% slider, 16% splitter, which there's not even a lot of big leaguers, like starters, that throw that specific mix of pitches. And I tweeted out something today, this Thursday, with the video of Mize from these two starts that I saw. And his delivery, if he was in high school, would get picked apart. And when he was in high school, it was similar, and it did get picked apart. But because he's performed so much in college, even the most traditional scouts don't even talk about his delivery very much. Like, I have to ask specific questions to get them to bring that up. And there are high school pitchers with similar to better mechanics that get picked apart and, oh, that's not my guy. We won't take that guy in the first round. So I, I think we think it's also interesting that given the pitch mix, the fact that there is some anecdotal evidence that cutters will hurt your velocity, his Fastball used to be a sinker and is now a four-seamer that doesn't get a lot of swings and misses. He throws a bunch of splitters. He pitches like a 27-year-old Japanese guy that's coming over to the big leagues, and we don't think he's necessarily going to get any better. He doesn't have physical projection. His delivery has you know some effort to it. There's been a little bit of an injury history. We've thrown around names like Masahiro Tanaka, Aaron Nola, guys like that. Like We think he'll be that kind of guy that might not necessarily be the 200, 220-inning you know, beast but he'll be good when he pitches, which is, you know, you could argue is still the number one guy. Like, even if we decide to take the low side on all of these concerns, he's still like top two or three in this class. But we're saying that we think if we put them all in the top 100, that him, Bart, and Magical are within 20, maybe 30 spots of each other, all three of them. 
And it seems like the talk from other people in the industry or other people in the media seems to suggest that there's a big gap there. And we think it's smaller for reasons like this, not about how good he is right now because the season has been really good. It's more about what's happened in the past and how we project that to affect him in the future. And then the counter argument to some of this stuff is big league pitch usage trends are moving away from fastball heavy uh, usage. And so that this is, you know, you could argue that Mize is just ahead of the curve in this sense. And then also, you know, Max Scherzer's delivery was picked apart in college. Chris Sale's delivery was picked apart in college. And, you know, these are unique entities in and of themselves. Their deliveries aren't anything like Mize's is. But yeah, so like there, there are arguments on both sides and we're just, you know, we're willing to look at, at each of them at this point as we're lining things up a couple weeks ahead of the draft. And I think you would also say looking back at the Mark Pryor, Joe Maurer draft, even if you know that Mark Pryor's career will not last very long and he'll blow out and all the things that happened will happen, you still probably take him number one overall because he basically was a Cy Young level pitcher for a couple years right after he was drafted. And that's important. We can't say that that's not what Casey Mize is going to do, that even if all of these concerns turn into something and he blows out and we know that's going to happen, he still might be the best player. Like if you looked at John Smoltz's delivery back when he was in the minors based on stuff that we kind of know now, you'd say, oh, that guy's going to blow out. Don't trade for that guy, which is what happened. And then he still made the Hall of Fame. So it's it's definitely a lot of like trying to stack the odds in your favor to kind of guess what he'll turn into and how he'll rank within this class of players and within a top 100. And those odds being a little more in one direction than I think people are perceiving still could end up meaning nothing. I have a question that's not about Mize directly, but I noticed with my eyes and also my memory that Casey Mize plays for Auburn. I understand that Auburn's in the SEC, and that's a very strong baseball conference, but I also don't necessarily think of Auburn as this. I don't necessarily think of Auburn as the strongest baseball school. However, it's also produced Josh Donaldson, Tim Hudson, Frank Thomas, Bo Jackson. It seems to have produced very great players on occasion. And I'm curious, is that the reputation Auburn has as a school or is it known as like typically a strong program and this is just uh, maybe with some some peaks and valleys if you separate the sec into like strong national like top 10 to 15 programs and then second tier ones and then sort of bottom tier ones that you know are more like mid-majors i think auburn would be pretty securely in that second tier like behind florida lsu vanderbilt probably even south carolina arkansas so I think it'd be in that middle tier, and usually those teams in the middle tier will have a really good player every five or six years and have, you know, a draftable guy or two every year and have a really good group of three or four top five round guys, you know, every four or five years. Like, I think they're in that sort of tier. I wouldn't say it's necessarily they get stars and nobody else. I mean, it's still sort of a football school. Same way as Alabama is like was in the bottom tier and it seems like they're working their way into the middle tier now. Right. Okay. So I actually, I'm not, I'm not just going to go with regard to your most recent mock draft. It's not just going to be one through 30 or whatever, but I am curious in this case about the, the player you have going to San Francisco Giants with the second pick catcher out of Georgia Tech, Joey Bart. I'm interested in him because I think that uh, the previous mock draft, he had been ninth. And while nine to two is only seven spots, those are seven pretty significant spots, I think. A couple questions about that, but I guess just generally about the pick itself. Yeah, it, early San Francisco was on Matthew Liberatore here in Arizona. They had like more than a dozen people at some of his starts, including a start that was unscheduled, like it wasn't on the high school schedule. And they kind of shoehorned it in before the team went to North Carolina for uh, NHSI, the big high school tournament that they have there every year, which uh, where Kylie saw Libby there. 
Uh, and I've been at like half a dozen starts of his here in Arizona throughout the year. And then they sort of, the interest there tailed off. And then Kylie started seeing them more where he's been on the road up, you know, in Atlanta. And some of that has been, you know, seeing people at, at Joey Bart. And he had clearly moved up, you know, in the eyes of the industry in general into this top tier of college hitters that the teams in the top five are considering and can you can kind of order them uh the way you want and so yeah we think you know it's it's a pretty it's tough for some of these teams picking one two uh it's even tougher for philly who doesn't have multiple like they don't pick again until the fourth round there's not a whole lot that these teams up top can do to play with their bonus pools and so we think it's going to be college hitters up top and uh just given who has kylie seen at joey bart games it seems like san francisco is on him so yeah yeah, and I would say that in the the first mock draft or 1.0, we saw it being Mize at one, and then there were three college hitters that had separated themselves, which was Alec Baum, third baseman at Wichita State, Nick Madrigal, second base at Oregon State, and Travis Swaggerty, center fielder at South Alabama. And we thought those three would go in some order, two, three, four. And then Bart was the next guy who could go anywhere from five to nine. And we pointed out nine is kind of the floor we haven't projected here, but you could also put him five or six. And then in that in that month since then, it became clear that Bart moved into that group, and it seems the consensus is that he moved past Swaggerty, who now seems like he's fourth in that group. And it's sort of, you know, Bart seems to have interest at two and three, and then again at five and six, but it sounds like the White Sox aren't really on. Like, it's sort of choose your own adventure between him, Bomb, and Madrigal at this point, and it seems like the Giants are much more on Bart than the other one. So it's it's more of a, he was a mid-delayed first-rounder entering the spring. He became a top-10 guy by the time we did our first mock draft, and then he became, okay, he's going to go 2, 3, 4, 5. Uh, so it was it was more of a subtle move. Like 9 and 2, I think, were the lowest he could go during the first mock, and then 2 was the highest he could go in the second mock. And now, right after the second mock, it sounds like there's a chance he would be the guy that goes first if Mize doesn't go first. So he's actually maybe even moved up a, a hair more. Okay, now, now you both have mentioned uh, sort of uh, one tool towards arriving at matching players with teams is uh, which front office members are present at uh, certain games. I would like to ask you about that in a moment. First, though, I would like to ask, uh, again, with regard to Joey Bart, Joey Bart is a catcher at Georgia Tech. Catchers in general, at least for, for me as an as an imposter talent evaluator, are frightening because if a if a player does not stick at catcher, then typically the next option is first base, right? The, the so the, the the tumble down the defensive spectrum is pretty dramatic. Whereas you know if if you're looking at a shortstop um, in college and you don't think he's going to stick there, then you know second or third is uh, is not so dramatic. So that's one one thing always to be cognizant of with regard to catchers. I also want to ask, I mean, to some degree, this is for Eric in particular, but I know that um, Eric has written quite a bit about prep catchers and how they are somewhat risky. And um, but here we have a a college catcher who is a, a player of great interest to to teams in the amateur draft. So I guess I'm also curious about the distinction between prep and college catchers. And whether if that's a greater distinction than prep and college other position players. So I would say that the 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 things that you're sort of scared of if you had to like put a 
a finer point on what it is other than just the track record of high school catchers you're scared of. It's that the position is so based on, you know, sort of mental ability to stay focused on a game, to be able to call a game. There's also the physical rigors that, you know, they're essentially an immature 17 or 18 year old. There's also if they get like one concussion, then all of a sudden they can't catch even if they physically could. Then there's also the issue outside of the draft of if you're, you know, Spanish is your first language, you then have to learn English while also, you know mastering Spanish and be able to talk to pitchers. Like there's so many additional elements to the position above and beyond a normal position, like second base, in addition to the physical stuff that there's just a lot more sort of potholes along the way. And with catchers in college, they've at least adjusted to living on their own, playing on a more regular basis, uh, maturing in some certain ways. So I wouldn't say half, but a, a significant number of those concerns are sort of addressed just by sort of existing in college and I think especially with BART, one of the things that scouts are kind of upset about is that because there's so much money, especially in the SEC and the ACC and baseball now, that you know coaches are all making well into the six figures and head coaches, there's like 10 of them making a million dollars, that they don't want these 19, 20-year-old kids calling pitches. They don't want them learning on the job when their job is on the line. And so generally, the coaches at every one of those big schools and most of the big travel teams, like the stakes are so high that the catchers can't call their own game. As far as I know, Joey Bart is the only player at a big school that calls his own game. He catches all the games. And I spoke with an area scout who got a call from Joey Bart. And he said, hey, we got a midweek game against Mercer this week. Mercer's in your area. How should we attack these guys? And stayed on the phone with them for over a half hour going through their whole team. Whoa. So that's like seen as a separator for him that he's seen as like that sort of, you know, pick your example, Dansby Swanson, whoever, you know, you're good makeup. You've followed him since high school. You knew he was good. Then he got better. And now it's premium position, premium defender, premium arm, premium power. And it seems like he's already demonstrated the sort of makeup, game calling, maturity, durability, all these sorts of questions you have about catchers in general. It seems like he's already passed all those tests as much as you possibly can at this stage of development. The two things that make it difficult to evaluate high school catchers, in addition to everything that Kylie just mentioned, is they're not typically catching a high concentration of quality stuff. It's easier to evaluate how college catchers defend because they're catching a higher concentration of talent. Like it's just if you're a high school catcher and the, the kid on your team who throws hardest is sitting 78 to 82, like it's not easy to get a read on what that kid can do defensively in a way that is like remotely close to what he'll be asked to do uh, from a skills perspective in pro. It might ball. give you an idea of how of how well he'd do catching Brent Suter. Sure. <laughs> so maybe the Brewers would have some interest in this guy. And then the other thing, too, is for an increasing number of teams, your ability to frame strikes is the most important aspect of defensive catching. And there's just zero data on that. Unless teams have identified physical characteristics that they can nurture to make someone a good pitch framer, which as far as I'm aware isn't like I don't know that that's a widespread thing that teams are able to do. It's more like general athleticism and things like that. It's sure. not like super specific. But like, you know, if that's if that's the most important f- part of catching defense for an increasing number of teams and you just have zero idea how good a high school player is at it and that makes up a large portion of his defensive projection then you know, you're just going to stay away. You know, you look at most of the big league catchers, it's a lot of college catchers and a lot of Latin American guys and a handful of conversion guys. So it's, you know, it's a strange it's a strange 
group, there are a lot of pitfalls between when you're drafted and when you reach the majors. And it takes, you know, even some of the guys who have been effective the last couple of years, Kurt Suzuki took forever. Max Stassi took forever. He's almost 20, 28, 29. Tucker Barnhart is like the only high school catcher draftee from the last 10 years or so who's who's doing anything at the big league level right now. It's It's a pretty weird group to try to evaluate. Yeah, for a long time, Brian McCann was the big example of a guy that was like touted, drafted high, and then turned into basically what everyone thought he would be. And there was like a long time where there was nobody like that. You mentioned, as I noted, that you have observed certain members of the, the Giants front office in particular. First at left-hander Matthew Liebertor starts. That's out. He's at a high school near you, Eric, in, in Phoenix. And then more recently, Kylie, there was, I think you had observed Giants front office members out at Georgia Tech Games, or were at least aware of that. This is something that's very fascinating to me. The idea that you could maybe draw some conclusions based off of the personnel and attendance. So I'm curious as to, I'm curious as to like, if you have like a some sort of scorebook in your head, or if you if you could develop like a point system. So like, if it's a national cross checker, that's worth like one point. You know, if it's like an assistant GM, that's two. If it's the actual general manager or president, that's four. Something like that. I mean, that's lame. What I've proposed, I recognize that. But yeah. Always trying to turn everything into numbers, Carson. I think this is interesting to, this is where it'd be interesting for people to, I think, know how, like why, how does the chain of command, and Kylie, you'd probably be better at explaining this efficiently than I than I would be. How does the chain of yeah, command- Yeah, but do we from- want to hear him? Do we want to hear him explain it though? That's yeah, the yeah. problem. I'm, yeah, I'm going gonna, gonna to mute myself here. Go ahead, guys. <laughs> uh, from area scout up to, you know, scouting director, how how does it get, what has to happen for a, a scouting director to be called in to see a player or a national cross checker? From my understanding, the scouting director and then the sort of coordinator office person who's sort of the traffic cop, uh, they sort of speak on a daily basis and that, you know, coordinator will talk to the area scouts and the cross checkers gets a good idea of, you know, these are the reports we have. These are the reports that are about to come in. This guy saw this guy yesterday and is currently writing a report, but he, you know, he plays again tomorrow and that fits into this guy's schedule. And it just sort of turns into like a priority making machine where, you know, it's like, all right, we're picking at 25. This guy won't be on the board, but this guy could be on the board and he's, you know, playing tomorrow and then he plays in an area that's hard to get to. So let's go see him here now. Okay, director, you can't go. All right, let me go to the national guy. All right, the national guy already saw him. Let's run in somebody else. And if we're thinking about reasonably taking this guy, we need to get the director to see him at least once. National guy, see him at least once. Another cross checker office guy for probably two more looks. If we get those done early, because we've identified them early, then we need to get in and get another one. And then you want the area scout to go in and get sort of the makeup and, you know, the medical and, all the different sort of paperwork and background things out of the way. And you get a varying amount of looks from, you know, lower level people if it's less likely that he's your pick or if it's fourth, fifth, sixth round where when you get down to that area, it might only be two guys in the entire room of 30 people have seen the player play before. But then that's the guy where you realize, all right, we might take this guy. We only have two looks. Let's bring him in for the pre-draft workout so all 30 people can watch him. And then, you know, the day before we pick them or, you know, something like that. So essentially the logic behind all these upper level decision makers being at games is that the scouts at the lower level of the organization have to have liked him for them for it to get to this point where these these scouts with big time titles are in to see them. And certainly if the GM and the scouting director are there, then like there has to be, you don't just go see someone 
if you're the GM just because it's like, well, I'm around. Like, <laughs> that doesn't happen. So if you agree with that assumption, then it's relevant wherever these people with these titles, national cross-checker, sky and director, general manager, vice president, etc., wherever they are is an indication that that team likes that player. And so we can sort of start to piece together just realistic ranges. Like we can use this as part of the part of the strategy to sort of put the puzzle together about where how the players line up for these teams by noting who is where and who is not. Like um I don't know, like players that are going to go in the middle of the first round, it would be very strange to see the Phillies general manager at a Cole win start. He's probably not in play for them at third overall. He's a prep right-hander. And they don't pick again until the fourth round, so they're not going to see him, and it doesn't make sense for them to go under slot. Like, it would be strange to see that guy there. But if you go to a Cole win start and you see national cross-checker from Atlanta and, you know, down through the Mariners assistant GM is there and, you know, at seven, you know, whoever picks 17, 16, 17, like Tampa and Kansas City have people there. You can kind of see, okay, well, like this is sort of where his range realistically is. These are the teams that are on him. And then when we're going out to get more dope for these mock drafts, we kind of know who to ask about as it relates to the player. And we can sort of, you know, polish things up from there and, and really get a feel for who's on an individual player and, or at least the range that he's expected to go. And I would also say that that, that Colin example is way more accurate at this juncture or maybe even a couple of weeks ago, because if you're picking 35th and that's your first pick and you think, hey, Colin, he's like somewhere in the first 50 picks, like in the, early in the spring, everybody goes in to see him. But then if by mid-April you're sending in important people, you've now decided in that sort of method that I explained earlier where it's like, okay, these are the seven candidates for our pick at 15 overall. Let's make sure all of them get seen twice down the stretch. So you wouldn't send that guy in to see a guy that you had absolutely no chance of getting. And so like there were instances where I saw Kumar Rocker, who at the time we thought would go, you know, anywhere from seven to 15. And one of his starts I saw a month ago, there were, I think, 12 uh, cross checkers or higher and 10 of them were from seven to 15. And I was like, oh, okay, there's a chance he goes outside of that range. One of the teams outside of that range that had a high level guy there was Kansas City who has the biggest draft pull and picks at 18. So they could essentially buy him down to that pick if they wanted to. So they're also essentially in that 7 to 15 range. And the funny thing was a, t- a team just outside of that range saw that tweet and the guy walked up to me and said, I'm not picking at 15. Why didn't you mention me? I'm like, you're literally the only non-Kansas City guy that's not picking in that range. So I you know, I made sure to say almost everybody. But there was also an instance, which happened a couple times already, where a scout will ask me or Eric, how did you know that we liked XYZ player in your mock draft? which also telegraphs that they do like that guy, and we were right. And one instance I had was a special assistant VP, like the number one or number two decision maker for a team, flew in to see a game that I wasn't there for, but I was there the next day. And in that first game, there was only one player that was a top three-round prospect for this year's draft, and that guy doesn't go to see anyone outside of the top three rounds. So when somebody told me, oh, so-and-so was here last night— I immediately knew he was only there to see that guy because he was gone the next day. And so I told that to the scout, and he goes— Oh yeah, that yeah, that's literally all you would need to know to know that we thought that guy was in the mix for us at this pick. Not that we're going to take him or that he's first in our mix or third or fourth in our mix, but that he's at least in our top four for this pick because that happened. And I wouldn't even have to be there for that game because the guy that told me I knew knew who this guy was and you know wouldn't make that up. 
uh, allow me to pause, but not, uh, but also inform producer Dylan Higgins that he should absolutely retain this portion of the audio. Eric, do you have a do you have a chat right now? Uh, it starts in yeah, but I you know we're a half hour into this. I can just tell people to hang on. It's not a big deal. Oh, okay, all right. I was curious. All right, I was just curious to see if you'd scheduled something during this very important, very important uh, prospects team. It's just my weekly thing. It's fine. When it starts in a couple minutes, I'll just be like, hey, hold on for 10 minutes. It's not uncommon for people to do. Are you going to tell people what you're doing? I don't know. <laughs> I'm talking behind you your back on another on another medium of content. I'm, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. utilizing this. You said, uh, you have told me, Eric Langenhagen, that Cleveland has the opportunity to ruin drafts for a number of other teams. And I, I gather that's by essentially acting as spoiler. But could you could you elaborate on that point, or is it even is it even really how you feel, uh, or did I somehow pervert the the sentiment that you were trying to convey? No, I think that you you've nailed it. You don't think I perverted anything? I'm no. Go well, <laughs> so yeah. So for those who are unfamiliar with the draft teams get compensation picks when free agents who've left the team sign elsewhere and it impacts the structure of the draft pretty significantly because at the end of the first round then you have typically between 8 and 15 picks that belong to teams like out of order essentially out of the inverse order of the way teams finished the year before record wise this all courts out of order so This year, that means that after the Dodgers pick at 30, Tampa picks 31-32, Kansas City picks 33-34, Cleveland picks 35, and then Kansas City and Cleveland each have a pick each again in the, at 40 and 41. And so all of this is going on before the Tigers, who were the worst team, are on the clock for the second time, before the, the Giants are on the clock for the second time. Among this group, with extra picks, Cleveland's pick at 29 can just undo, like they're going to have the first opportunity to take this group of players we've identified as like these high school outfielders with upside, whatever of the high school pitching has fallen farther than it probably should have on talent just because the teams are seeking safety and college players ahead of them. Like the Indians have a chance to spend a lot of money at pick 29, more than their $2.3 million slot value at that pick because they have all these extra picks coming up right behind that. Their bonus pool is higher and they're going to have their first crack at, you know, all of these high upside high school guys who we think are in play for Tampa and Kansas City at picks 31, 2, 3, and 4. And that combined with Cleveland's tendencies, which skew toward younger players in last year's draft, they took uh, Quinton Holmes, an outfielder from upstate New York, and Jonathan Rodriguez, just sort of a projectable body, essentially, from Puerto Rico. Like, they're just young. It's it's young high school performers, guys who hit on summer showcases. Like, that's who Cleveland tends to pick. And, like, there's this slew of high school outfielders, especially, who we think are all in play for Cleveland, Tampa, Kansas City, even Houston and, and the Dodgers in this area, we think are all on this type of players. And Cleveland is going to have their first crack at that group and have as much money as you know they would need to do whatever they want. It's just one of those things down the draft that is it's really interesting. Like this draft for Kansas City and Tampa is so huge, especially for Kansas City. I mean, Tampa doesn't have the resources to like they have to hit on as many of these guys as possible because this is where they have the opportunity to like acquire premium big league talent. Just don't have the chance to do that on the free agent market, and they've got a bunch of 
early picks this year. Like they have to, they have to nail it. And Cleveland is sort of standing in the way, like this just sort of pillar of of dread. It definitely seems interesting when you're doing a mock draft and there's three straight picks and you tie all the same players to three straight picks and you're like, all right, well, if there's three of them, they're probably going to go three in a row at these slots, but the team picking 30th is going to be really pissed that all these guys they like get down to the picks in front of them and then there's only one of them left. You know, if they could trade up two spots, they would do it, but they can't do that. And Kansas City uh, has a bunch of picks, I guess. Well, I believe this is the first is the first or second draft under the, the most recent CBA. So there's uh, sort of some acclimation necessary. But, of course, Kansas City lost or had a, uh, a sort of a mass exodus or was at least set to have a mass exodus of talent from their World Series team. They ended up retaining Mike Moustakas and, I guess, Alcides Escobar. Uh, but the, the most relevant day parties uh, were Lorenzo Cain and Eric Hosmer, which is what that's part of the reason that they have so many picks in the top 50 or whatever, I assume, right? Yeah, and I would say also that the um, some GMs, like AJ Prowler would be the number one example, are seen at tons of games. Like, I think we might know over a dozen games he's been to this spring. I've seen him like three times in the last couple of weeks to where we just start chatting and it's like, oh, hey, where are you going next? We're like, oh, I'm going to be here. Like, he'll just tell me where he's going because I know he's going to see everybody. So, him being at a game is not a big deal. Every other GM, it's a big deal if they're at a game, and there's still 10 or 15 of them that just don't really go to games. But of those other 10 or 15 that do, Dayton Moore hadn't typically been one of those, and then he showed up to the Ryan Weathers, high school pitcher in Tennessee and son of David Weathers, showed up to his start that I was at. As far as I knew, that was the first game he'd been to this spring. And then I was told he went to go see Ryan Rollison at Auburn a couple days later. And that from what these people had heard, because this is such an important draft with so many picks and so much money to spend, especially when the big league team isn't excelling and you just lost a lot of big players, this is a very important draft for them. And he's, so he doesn't typically in-person scout players in the last few years, and this year he is. So that's another way where who's at a game kind of gives you an idea of where the headspace is and kind of what they're considering. You ever talk to AJ Preller about former managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron? I think his name actually came up, but yeah, it was not the the longest part of the conversation. Probably discuss how it was it was solely Dave Cameron's idea to sign first baseman Eric Hosmer. He did, yeah, that is the part that we talked about. Is he goes, can you believe Dave <laughs> maybe signed this first baseman? I don't even like this guy. <laughs> the uh, but he kept he gave me the study about clubhouse chemistry, so here we are. <laughs> I understand that uh, I would like to believe that Eric Longanega has some pressing duty in terms of a chat. However. Uh, I do think that uh, it might it might make sense to entertain Pressing just very duty. briefly, yeah, <laughs> to to move on uh, just to one uh, at least no more. Well, of course we we already discussed one pro prospect already. That was the person of Josh Rojas. Oh, we were recording um, then. I didn't know we had started. Oh yeah, we do. I just kind of I just like to play it cool. I just like to kind of ease into it. The um, <laughs> Vladimir Guerrero Jr. I mean, he has received no little attention this this off season because he was what? Where, where did he rank? Was he third on your prospect? Three, your, yeah, yeah, behind you know, Acuna and Otani, who I believe have both lost eligibility. Right, they're both in the major league, so he's the, he's the best, presumably the best prospect at this point. Uh, that that's not been in a major league roster. He's doing very well for a nineteen year old at Double A. <laughs> yeah, and, you, you could say that. Yeah, and I guess the, so. He seems to be a bit of a prodigy. Right. But I guess I'm curious as to where he fits in, you know, the sort of like recent history where he fits in that uh, that spectrum of of hitting prodigies. Like, do you mean the firmament, Carson? Is that what you're talking about? 
do I? I might mean the firmament. I've I've often wondered if I meant the firmament, and this might be another example where it's where it's possible. But like Bryce Harper, for example, is pro- I mean, it's probably the most notable example. Yeah, Michael Trout. Michael Trout. Yeah, I mean, maybe I don't know. No, actually, if many Machado was considered this level of player, he actually seems. I mean, he was good in the minor yeah. leagues, but he actually seems to have become a superstar as a major leaguer. Like he didn't necessarily have. Like he actually somehow improved his profile in, in the major league. No, he was he was up there then. Yeah, but I think what I said is probably more <laughs> accurate than what you're saying. <laughs> that should be on your business card. <laughs> I really liked Eric and I. Uh, Eric was a guest on the Pitch Talks Blue Jays podcast the other day, and I had mentioned that it was not my responsibility to know maybe, um, I don't know, when a certain player had been acquired. Yeah, it was Tyler Clippert, and I think I had said that I – I forget what term I used to, to – to excuse myself from from having no knowledge of Tyler Clippard's whereabouts last year, and but then Eric stepped up and said, "That's not an excuse. That's not an excuse, Carson. Here is the answer." You remember wow. when you did that, Eric? <laughs> remember Long and Hagen when you said that? What a hero. yeah, vaguely, yeah, yeah. That was. I a mean, great he moment. was he. Tyler Clippard has sort of been all over the place, so it's hard to nail that down. Yeah, if only there were a Johnny Cash song. That were appropriate. Yeah, we know four different high school games Tyler Clippard's been scouting in the last month, so we, we know exactly where he's been. <laughs> so, Vlad Jr., where is he in, in the firmament of of uh, minor league hitters, age relative to level, and then all, all of that combined with performance? Where is he placed? Where do you place him? I think if we're talking strictly about hit and power tool and ignore speed and defense and position, he would be essentially like right there at the top. Because I think we're we're probably going. I mean, we are going to sort of round up on his tools and the update to the board. Come, sorry, the board in all caps coming in the next week or so. And I think we'll probably settle at either seventy hits, seventy power, or something close to that. And there's not a lot of players that projected better than that on those two tools while in the minor leagues. But the issue is, some of them like Machado or Harper or Trout had really good other tools, and so those tools separate them as overall prospects. But as Hitter only, he's essentially right there at the top with a couple other guys. So if I were to read off a list of MLB players who have made their debut at age 18, 19, 20 over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, mm-hmm. like, let's just play the either or. You would do it in, you would do it in Mr. Let's Bean's just, voice. <laughs> all right. So like, let's set a baseline. Okay. So Vlad Guerrero Jr. or mm-hmm. and Profar. Okay. Like, this is an easy one, right? Yeah, Vlad Guerrero Jr. is Starlin Castro. Like it's easy. Okay. Are we talking about overall? Well, here, so some of it is revisionist. Okay, because you have to. I want you to try to think about how you thought about these guys at this time, not what we know now. So, like, okay. if I were to say Vlad Guerrero Jr. or Adrian Beltre, that's more complex question to answer mm-hmm. because Beltre debuted at nineteen, but we know a lot. We know twenty years worth of stuff about Beltre now. Yeah, but on the nineteen ninety four Fringe Five, Adrian Beltre was pretty high. <laughs> okay, so Vlad Guerrero Jr. or Justin Upton. Who debuted at 19 in 2007? Who is the better prospect the day they first set foot on a big league field? Because I think Vlad will be up this year at some point. I think he's probably better than Josh Donaldson right now. And I know the Blue Jays have been anticipating him debuting as a teenager for like two years now. Uh, like that's where I think it's close. Yeah. What was the sort of? I mean, because Guerrero makes so much contact. Uh, Upton doesn't now, nor do I expect that he did as a um, as a minor leaguer. But I but I can't answer that question off the top of my head. It's at least in the ballpark. I think it's, yeah, I think I'd probably take Vlad, but I think it's close. But if you asked me to pick Vlad or Bryce Harper, I'd have like, like I still think I would, Harper at the time, I thought more highly of Harper and Trout after his first, you know, 
for a season of pro ball. But I don't think, other than those two. Yeah, and I think Trout, by virtue of being a center fielder, I think he would be ahead. You're actually, what you're kind of illustrating, you might be illustrating a point accidentally, which is a lot of the players who have debuted at, you know, 20 or younger, including those who've had very good bats, seems like many of them have also been um, esteemed somewhat for their defensive skills. And I gather that's not really the case of Vlad Guerrero, who has, in the words of Al Pacino in the movie Heat. No, he actually says great ass. That's not what I want to say about <laughs> Vlad Guerrero. He's got a giant ass, though. He has a giant ass. And uh, He also doesn't seem to be very interested in focusing on his defense, like, since all the way back when he was 14 or 15. Like, I talked to teams that had him in private workouts, and they said, here, put on a glove and take some ground balls. And he's like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> Why would I do like, that? I like, like that's not why you're signing me. So you can you can just live with whatever that's going to be. And apparently that's still a concern now. Debuting at 19 and 20 is not, you know, you're not preordained to be some sort of demigod. I mean, we think this guy is going to be, but like BJ Upton was up at 19. Willie Mopena was up at 20. Wilson Bedemit and Corey Patterson. Well, uh, I think Willie Mopena was up at 20 because of a contractual uh, okay. trigger essentially that required him to and i don't know bj upton was a shortstop who could hit right and he also played for a team that was crap <laughs> is that a technical term <laughs> yeah <laughs> i had a crap this is coming from carson the guy who gets on dave cameron for saying this player sucks and he goes yeah this whole team's crap <laughs> the team's winning percentage was very poor here's a comparable jason hayward 2010 yeah good job carson great selection yeah. I think that's a. I think that's another good one at the time. Like Hayward was incredible. I he, I thought he was going to be a. I mean, the defensive corner outfielder that he is, plus thirty thirty five annual bombs. And I know that there's stuff that's gotten in the way of him reaching that. That you know has nothing to do with him. But yeah, I mean, I when when Hayward when Hayward came up, I remember that the reports were always like, oh, have you, did you see Jason Hayward's you know batting practice? He put on a show in batting practice. Probably had comparable raw power to Vlad Jr. It just wasn't a game thing. Yeah, but he but he actually, I mean, he produced the season before he was recalled or, you know, promoted. When he went through, he played at high A and double A. He recorded strong power numbers there that year. And then uh, and then he was actually pretty good in that regard in his rookie season as a 20-year-old. It's only been since then, I guess. That, uh, that, he's I mean, he's merely a hundred millionaire. He's some sort of failure. Well, he's he's failed to he's failed to. Uh, he's would failed would to, you say uh, he sucks, Carson? Is that how you describe his career? No, I wouldn't say. That. I'd say he's, he's probably, probably very talented. He's very talented. And also, I mean, what about Giancarlo Stanton? I don't know if this would necessarily if this was his debut season. Yeah, 2010. The thing about the Stanton debuting as young as he did is it was the most frustrating aspect of the Aaron Judge comps when Judge was still at Fresno State and like struggling to make contact at Fresno State at the same age that Stanton already had 100 career big league home runs. Which I can tell you one um, one guy that does numbers for a team at the time, when I said, oh, he's like sort of like Stanton, and didn't say he's the same or he's the same player or whatever, he goes, Stanton had 75 home runs at the same age, and I now remind him of that conversation often to say like, hey, guess what? They're on the same team, and it's like hard to tell who's clearly better at this point. He's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's just the bit it was just about the frame and the build and the tapered shoulders and like that's where the comps there's, came there's from. so few guys that are that big with those tools like there's only like people were comping judge in college to uh lebron james and blake griffin because they just didn't have a lot of comps for that size and athleticism aaron judge's season his 2017 season he recorded eight wins just over eight <laughs> wins I was there were comments in the top 100 
two off seasons ago that like, why is Aaron judge on your top 100? <laughs> Cause he just had that terrible end of the season. And, and it was just, you know, Yankees fans hated him cause they're idiots. Just like I, every other I, I to <laughs> large populace of, of human beings. <laughs> I talked to multiple scouts in the Florida State League, which is high A, that saw Aaron Judge for, you know, five, six, seven, eight games there and had him written up as a four, which would be like a platoon backup outfielder in high A. Like he was he was never at any point in the minor scene was like, oh, this guy's definitely going to be a stud. Like even in triple eight was like, ah, we'll see what happens. Interestingly, Aaron Judge's age 25 season, eight wins. That is better than... Well, it's still, it's actually better than any season Giancarlo Stanton has recorded to date. However, it would have also been better than any season that Stanton recorded up till age 25. And I also have it on decent authority that the Yankees would not have drafted him if they didn't have three picks that year. They picked, I believe it was like 25, 27, and 28. And if they had only one pick, I am almost certain they would not have drafted him. Here's what, uh, Kyle, like, I would like to tell you something directly. Uh, we, uh, I mentioned, what, about 15 minutes ago that Eric Longenagin had a... Uh, had a chat scheduled for this time, scheduled for, so it's right now it's 217 local time, it's it scheduled for 2 p.m. Here's, here's the message uh, with which he decided to go. Hey, everyone, finishing up a podcast, we'll be here shortly. He didn't, even, he didn't really mention us. Yeah, I feel like I should at least get a mention in delaying your chat like this. Yeah, eh, I don't need people's vitriol directed at you. Am, am I not a star in this delayed chat narrative we're weaving? I would, I would also love to direct. I'm prepared to direct my vitriol at Kylie. Yeah, why not? Carson's like a producer of this at least, but I'll take the starring role. Mm, yeah. Thoughts on Jose Soriano and Trent DeVoe in the Angels system? Oh, it's going to be a podcast chat now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me ask you about one other professional professional prospect whose name uh, seems to seem to be appearing in many of my my searches around uh, minor league leaderboards and that's Juan Soto Nationals outfield prospect is it Juan Soto does that sound yeah. right don't sound so certain <laughs> I, I just saw I don't him. know I'm uh, Ron he, Burgundy he's doing so he's already in his third level this year uh, he's at double A and he's hitting very well against double A as he did uh, against uh, low A and high A pitchers Obviously, one cannot anticipate this kind of breakout, but uh, can you maybe provide a brief synopsis, either and or one of you, on Juan Soto's tool set and uh, what about it might have uh, might be changing or improving in a way that... Um, I'll take this because kind of give... I saw him first, and then I'll let Eric talk because I think he saw him last week. Um, Indeed. Yeah, I saw him, uh, actually, I believe in the same showcase as Vlad Jr., if I'm not mistaken, before they signed. And it was sort of a prototypical left-hand hitting, right fielder, fringe runner. You can project above average to plus powered. Some field to hit, but it wasn't quite all the way there yet. And hit pretty well in the games, had an arm for right field. I'm like, okay, this seems like a you know million-dollar guy or so. And then he signed for, I believe, 1.5 with the Nationals as one of the top 10 to 15 guys in the class. And then he's been banged up a little bit in pro ball, so it hasn't been a huge bulk of numbers. So you, I think it's the same issue like Acuna had, where he had broken out in short season. People were ready to really jump on the bandwagon in low A, and then he played basically a month that whole season. So it got delayed until last year when he had a full season, and everyone's like, oh, crap, this guy's really good. Mm -hmm. Soto, we got a lot of questions. I think we ranked him right around 50 on the top 100, and he's played like 100 professional games. So it was like a very aggressive ranking given how much he's played. But it basically sounds like the hitability went from pretty good to you know, plus pitch selection, above average to plus back control, plus raw power. He's getting to it in games. He's lifting the ball. Sounds like he's a little bit more athletic, still sort of a right field profile. Like essentially in the same way that I described Christian Pache as 
had above average tools that just turned into plus and plus plus tools within a year after signing. It sounds like Soto went from, you know, average to above tools and it just everything turned into plus within the next couple of years. And we're just sort of seeing it on a big stage now since he didn't get to play a whole lot the last year or two. Yeah. The, I mean, the numbers are, are, they are, they're remarkable. But Eric, tell us what you far. saw. Yeah. It's, it's just huge bat speed and like, the ability to rotate about, you know, the vertical axis that your body creates and, and really whip the bat around that axis, like, it is, it is pretty amazing as far as Soto is concerned. And the control. Do you know what muscles do that? Are those, uh, what muscles are doing that? It's your core, Carson. You just really got to engage your core. You know, it's, you know, it's the, it's the quote unquote kinetic chain. It does start with your feet, but really has to do with the, the angular velocity that at which you can rotate your, Torso, essentially, like your front shoulder has to clear and everything sort of accelerates. That sounds like the how someone you would teach someone to do the twist. You got to start with your feet and then really engage your hips. Maybe the Dougie? Could you could you teach me how to do the Dougie? Yeah, I can do the Dougie. Or I used to be able to do the Dougie. It's been a long time. Wait, was that your question, Carson? It was I used to drink Long Island iced teas. It was terrible. But anyway, like the I talked to a scout who saw his Double A debut and said that the homer he hit out, like he barely got a hold of it and just he sort of mishit it the opposite way and there's just so much power here that that it went out so yeah you know it's a corner only profile it's why he has sort of it's the thing that as we've discussed him has sort of moved him into the middle of the hundred instead of towards the top but it's just so clear at this point now and then the extra information that we have about his approach you know the walk rate is just sky high now at every level and the sample is, is large enough at this point that it's like okay here's a guy with plus plus power that comes from this incredible ability to rotate with with so much violence and yet still control it combine that with the on base ability and it's like yeah it doesn't really matter where this guy's going to play so he certainly moved up i believe we had Eloy Jimenez and Kyle Tucker as corner only guys in our top 10 overall so obviously the the upside for this sort of player is still very high, like in a, in a list sense. He's closing on them as far as the time horizon to the big leagues aspect of like the evaluation. Now, you know, with Tucker and Eloy playing well at uh, like Tucker, at, you know, double and triple A and stuff and in the fall league and, you know, now Soto's at double A doing it. So he's he's right there with those guys as far as this stuff is concerned. It's just the uh, he's, he's moving up. Yeah. I imagine Soto and Vlad Jr. will both have slightly different tool grades when we update it as well. What I'd like to say is that uh, you both have fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Can this guy with the gun like leave my apartment now? Well, let's think. Well, no, hold on. Before we end it, like uh, here's an interesting. I've got the hundred up. You no, must, no, this is interesting. This is like one of the things chat. that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. I've got the hundred that I've sort of curated since the last one that is like sort of half baked an update. And I've got Soto at 30 up from. I'd move him up. I'm moving okay. him up. So now the I question is, so, 10. all right. So based on what? Like, what's your logic? Oh boy. The here bat. we go. <laughs> would you have him the bat is ahead fantastic. of, would, would you have him ahead of Vlad Jr.? No. Fernando Tatis Jr.? Also at double A, also nineteen, shortstop, third base. How good is it? How good of a shortstop is he? It's there's scouts who think it, it's a no for them, and others who think it's fine, more acrobatic than rangy, sort of that type of. Maybe we can hide the range with defensive positioning. 
you know, like that's sort of the mean outcome is he's a 50 defensive shortstop like Correa and Seager and stuff like they're 50s. Yeah. I mean, if he was already ranked fifth and and he's already he's probably moved up because of that, because of graduations, then maybe I wouldn't. Eloy, uh, Victor Robles, Nick Senzel, Bo Bichette, any of these guys like you're like dying to stick. I put him ahead of Bo. I put him ahead of Bo Bichette. Kyle Tucker. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I think I just think he's he's really good. I will say that we've got Luis Robert at 18. He's an extended spring training. He's got an up the middle profile, but the the physical tools are similar. When he comes back, he's going to be at high A. So and he like, has that's zero sort of the range. Numbers. Like he has he's no anything, numbers. So he has to be ahead of Robert. So like this is where the as Kylie and I are doing this, like this is where the jumping off point is. It's like okay, clearly he should be ahead of Robert because he's performing at Double A. He's a year younger than him. He hasn't had this injury this year. So like this is how we sort of start to line these yeah. guys up. Like somewhere from Bichette to as we call him Lou Bob. It sounds like somewhere in that Lou area Bob. is where he lands. And then, and then we'll get to like the specific tools. Like, well, if you line him up next to Eloy, he's, you know, a, a year younger, one level behind, and the tools are the same except for this one. All right, let, let's really like flesh this out. Should he be right next to Eloy or is it actually closer to Bichette? I'd put him ahead of Kyle Tucker. What's Kyle Tucker's defense like? Average to a little above in right field. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm saying I think they're comparable. They could both be six hit, six power average right fielders. And then you have the apples to oranges stuff, like, how do you line up Francisco Mejia with Soto? Like, I don't even know how we'd begin to have that discussion. We don't even know what position Mejia is, much less... And he's exactly playing left field right now, and he's not hitting, but he's a triple-A. And you don't want to overreact and say, oh, because Soto's been really well, done really well the last month, and Mejia hasn't, do we now want to flip them, like, 40 spots? That seems like a lot, but if the a tools lot. end up being close, then maybe the performance is a tiebreaker. Like, maybe the, the, when the tool and track record when we ranked him 50 was a little light and now that there's new tools he should on merit be somewhere between 10 and 20 and then if Mejia was supposed to be at 12 and has dropped down to 10 to you know to 15 to 20 like now they're basically right next to each other do you just lean toward the guy that's healthy and performing and has a little more defensive value or you know there's a lot of considerations here's a proposal here's a proposal let's record again soon and when we do let's have all this let's have this argument in a in a formal setting in a more formal way do I have to wear a blazer you do. Ooh, I have a brown and white uh, checkered blazer that I've been dying to wear for a while. Let's do it. I'd like to thank Kyla McDaniel and Eric Longenagen for participating. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. And this is Fangraphs Audio. That's what you sound like. Mm-hmm.